Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Tim McKay. Tim is a marketing communications consultant and managing director of his own business, Tim McKay Communications, which delivers strategic planning, innovation, communication in leadership, advertising and marketing advice, as well as workshops and digital planning. Uh, Tim, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. It's very kind to invite me onto your podcast. And it's a pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves with us as well. Um, Normally at this point in the show, we tend to dive straight into the topic of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I'd like to approach this from that angle because it has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, to what extent has it actually affected things? Well, I work as a consultant, and as a result of that, um, I saw things basically drying up in the first lockdown. Um, businesses were more focused on trying to keep themselves going rather than looking for any new planning or strategy in the context of, of a leadership role. Um, and that, that seems to be the same. I'm based, as you can possibly tell from my accent, I'm in, in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. um, where we have seen um, quite quite a lot of change going on in the environment of Northern Ireland anyway over the last number of years, as you'll be well aware of. Um, And I was involved with Northern Ireland Screen, which has seen the growth of the film industry from quite literally nothing to being over £500 million into the local economy. For example, all of the film production stopped Line of Duty, which many of your listeners will know Uh, is produced here and it was put on hold only recently started again. So everything, I think, like everywhere else, dried up a little bit. Um, But during the the lockdown, what I also did was um, on a completely accidental uh, move forward, which will surprise you, is that I set up a Northern Ireland business group on Facebook. And um, I did this because I was looking for somewhere to publish a blog. I shared it with some friends. Um, And that was done on the 6th of June right in the middle of the continuing lockdown and continuing challenges. And we now have uh, twelve over 12,000 members. Um, and it's one of the most positive environments that you could possibly see and visit because, again, what has happened during lockdown is people have wanted to keep going. Um, they have been very positive. The ones, the members, you want to see the amount of business being done between the members, buying locally, sharing advice, helping each other, supporting each other. Uh, asking questions about things relevant to COVID, but also Mm. in the wider footprint. But they've they've really demonstrated that the SME, and this is the S side of the SME economy, is very determined, uh, very driven to keep going, doing their best to keep alive, and and are pushing to buy local. I think that's one of the things we've seen. Um, So it's been very effective. It's been very helpful, and we've developed it so we do live broadcasts, we do live supporting, we're doing one on Thursday about marketing, so we five of the members coming on. Mm. So we've been very active in this environment, and I don't think, to be quite honest, it, would, it wouldn't have had the traction 
uh, without it being COVID. But but it's been very helpful for people and very supportive, and and that's been I suppose my biggest in uh, lockdown success. I suppose is, has been getting to be able to do this and and help people as much as we can. And there are a lot of good things to come out of that because we've seen so much communication and collaboration between businesses during this time, particularly those that would normally be competitors. And there's a real recognition that as a group of businesses and business leaders, we're not alone in what we're doing. Everybody is in the same boat and that sharing of information and even among the pharmaceutical companies in the quest for a vaccine, that sharing of intellectual property as well. It's something that we've never seen before. So that sense of sort of unity, that collaboration, that is something really positive that we can actually take forward from this, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think in the context of leadership, it shows how important communication is. And this will be, I suppose, my recurring theme when I talk to people about leadership and I talk to businesses about leadership. I often ask them how much focus and attention they pay to communication. Mm. And I also ask in the larger companies how many of them have somebody who is a, an expert in communication at board level. And I have to say, it is very, very rare, yet it is one of the most important parts of a successful business, both internal and external communications. Um, and we all just take it for granted a little bit. But what we're seeing in COVID is that, that communication is done well, is incredibly productive for businesses, and people will be helpful and supportive. And even, as you mentioned, even competitors recognize that there are times when they can't do everything or when they're looking for expert help. Um, and, but it takes leadership to to open, be open up, and mm. open yourself up and your company up to those options. Um, when we look at something, you know, in the past when when we had leaders that were all about closing down and competing and everything was on all about co- competition. When and it is still how you compete, but in the modern world and particularly in the modern media channels that are available. Communication can send out very different messages about businesses that are beneficial to them Mm. in the tone that they adopt, in the support they give to others, in larger businesses supporting smaller businesses. Um, And I think it's one thing that that business people and particularly the younger people maybe don't understand as yet in their business career how important the supplier network and chain is Mm. for large companies to then buy into the local market to supply and we're I'm saying this on my group all the time you know people who are looking for packaging people are looking for the inside bits for packaging you know there's a whole chain of people who are involved in getting a product into the market and looking local has produced a lot of very positive things for businesses in Northern Ireland people who had normally gone abroad for packaging for example are finding that they can buy competitively in the local market they just haven't realized it before um, but that whole nature of being a leader, I think, is is you've got to be not just a communicator. You've got to aim to be the best communicator in the business. Mm. You've got to set an example and a- enable people to be free with their communication. And again, when you're looking at younger people to tap into their talent is to create an environment with, with as level as is possible so that you can have uh, uh, meetings that everybody's opinion is listened to. And you remove fear, which comes with hierarchies. Um, I think it's one of the biggest challenges in business. And I did some work with civil service in Northern Ireland. Lots of meetings, lots of people concerned about what grade the people in the meetings were. And I was from the private sector looking at this going, why does it matter? Um, If they have a good idea, it doesn't matter what grade they are. 
But unfortunately, what happened quite a bit was the bad ideas from the senior grades were taken mm. very seriously and the good ideas from the lower grades were ignored. Um, so again, it's the confidence. I think the biggest thing about a leader who's a great leader is confidence. Mm. Um, it's the confidence to use and tap into talent. And I don't think we do enough of it. I don't think we do enough of it in the private sector or the public sector. Um, there's there's a way more talent out there than is being used. And just on talent, especially among the younger generations of people who may be looking at the economic situation and downhearted about what it is doing to their employment prospects, what message as a business leader would you have for those youngsters to really get them to pick their heads up, go looking for opportunities and get on the road to success? I think it's diversity. I think it's where you look and what you look for. Um, we see so often that the educational process in schools, etc., pushes people before very much towards businesses that are traditional, accountancy, law. I've seen the growth in marketing over the la- over the length of my career um, from it basically people used to start in a local newspaper and, and then end up in marketing and now there's degrees and all sorts of things. And it's become probably oversubscribed. Um, what happens with, as you'll know, with oversubscribed sectors is that the people don't earn as much money because there's not as much demand for them. So, I think it's diversity of where you look and what you look for. I think there's a low level of awareness of the opportunities out there. I think we need to see more leadership from the education sector in careers and careers teaching. Um, I have met young people, friends of my kids and friends of, of, of other people, uh, who have ended up doing the most incredible jobs, may, mainly by accident, and, and made careers out of them because they they find them rather than set out to get them, if that makes sense. So, you know, there was a young man I met, and he works as a, a as part of a SWAT team for a charity. He's based just outside London. They fly into uh, areas where there's been temp, big, big storms and, and help the communities. He, he came across that job. He absolutely loves it, but he had no idea he would end up there. Uh, and the other thing I think young people have to do is, is – Stop thinking that the decision they make now is going to be where they end up forever. I think there's this huge flexibility in the job market now. But the other side of that is employers have to be flexible too. And they also have to say, you know, we're going to take people who don't necessarily have the exact qualifications that we would have asked in the past. But we're looking for people who are able to learn, able to change, bring new ideas mm. to the party because of a different background. So I, I think we're, we're very fixed and formed in our way of thinking about things. I think there's opportunities for young people there to find new things to do. And I think there's a huge opportunity for employers to find new people to bring new ideas to their businesses. I think you're absolutely right there. There does need to be flexibility on both sides, both for um, prospective employees for being able to change their skill set, but also employers do need to show that flexibility and willingness to bring on new people as well, perhaps with different and diverse sets of skills. Um, One of the other areas where flexibility is um, essentially a buzzword as well is what is exactly going to become of our working practices, both through the winter as we sort of keep living under these COVID-19 restrictions and also indeed beyond that in the long term future. 
infrastructure and sustainability becomes far more of a focus. Now, um, over the course of the year, the next few months, so we know that working from home is probably going to be the way of things. But even when hopefully we do have a working vaccine in place for COVID-19 and the virus itself may no longer be an issue, there could well be due to the knock-on effects on consumer confidence because of the anxiety that the pandemic has caused, a hesitancy for people to actually go outside again, commute into workplaces and go out and spend money and uh, go into different venues. So could we see, well, a lot of flexibility in our working practices um, for a much longer period of time than perhaps we expected with more people working from home on a personal basis and maybe just doing one or two days in the office or even some businesses jettisoning their premises completely, do you think? I, I think if this was looked at uh, an opportunity and not a, not a problem, then you could see a really dramatic positive change come out of COVID. Mm. And w- what I mean by that is I, I've developed a system looking at, at marketing and it's co- I call it audience first. And you start with looking at the audience of the people that you're trying to sell to, whether that's people who are going to go to work, whether it's people who are going to go shopping, go into, et cetera. We, we now can look at the change and the threat doesn't come from COVID. Just on the high street, the threat is coming from online. And everyone is saying, oh, look at Amazon. It's very, very difficult to compete with them. And I asked in, in my group, I said, how many of you do business as well as Amazon does? And how many of you know the names of your customers when they come in? How many of you know what their preferences are, what they bought the last time, um, what recommendations you can give them? And I have to say the answers came back that very few people knew that and put that work and effort into it. But also the thing when you're talking about homeworking and you're talking about working practices, you look at a high street, for example, and I live near a small town called Hollywood, and, and Hollywood, the shops open at nine o'clock, and then they close at five, and then the restaurants open, um, and I just wonder why they aren't opening at the same time, why they haven't put some effort into getting rid of the traffic from the main street, put awnings over the street, you know, put, create an environment which is much more attractive to the people that you're selling to. And I think the thinking has to change. I think, we, I think we're going to see a change. We're going to see people who are not going to want to go back to, particularly in, in your area, slightly less so here, but it still exists, spending a minimum of an hour a day in a car for no reason. And it's caused them to think about it. Their productivity has actually gone up because they're starting work at home at half eight. Um, and then they're giving themselves time. They have flexibility during the day. But it has to be within the context of of encouraging those that are suffering from this, you know, and it is the towns and the high streets and the shops. But the, I'm not sure what it happens in London. Is Oxford Street open after half past five? Um, at, the, at the moment, I believe so. At the moment, I believe it is. But um, I think yeah. it does close them a lot earlier than um, it would normally would. Yeah, but you you look at that generally, and you look at the context of if you look at what people want. And a lot of people have experienced this when they've been abroad. They, and everyone says the weather. That we, we can't let the weather dictate to us. We have to work in the context. This is 2020. There's obvious facilities out there to, to develop roof coverings, etc., that will protect people from the weather. There's heat available, etc. And, and that needs to be looked at. Otherwise, we're going to see a totally negative environment. Mm. I think people working from home, I think it's a, it's a terrific opportunity. And again, people have said to me, oh, yeah, but it's the social interaction. But if you're saving two, three hours a day, which a lot of people are, 
take the time out, you know, use that time for social interaction. Go in and arrange to meet people or else if you want to go in on one or two days a week. But I do think there's too much of this. I, I'm hearing too much of we have to get back to the way things were. I think it's a huge opportunity to make the, the, the UK economy move forward to where it should be. Mm. Um, and I think that, that needs to be really seriously taken on board. It does, certainly. It's going to be a very interesting uh, few months and indeed years to come uh, for certain. And over the course of the uh, the next 12 months, just before we do wrap things up, Tim, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time today, um, we know that over the course of this period, um, we're going to be living under new restrictions for quite some time to come at the new normal, of course, as it's built. Um, but over that period of time, when hopefully we will have a working vaccine in place, what is it business-wise that you're really hoping to achieve? And indeed, where do you see your cells being this time in a year? Well, we, on, on the back of the success of the Facebook group, um, I'm working with a couple of people to develop a new marketing platform for small businesses. Um, because what I've seen is that they they are not in complete control of their marketing. A lot of them don't have a marketing strategy. They're not quite sure how to use Google or Facebook the most productive way. Um, and I think we've got what we're, we're calling in the terminology a post-Google marketing platform and development, which is very exciting. Uh, very low cost for small businesses to get involved with, and we'll be marketing sectors and promoting it almost like a, a big Northern Ireland shopping centre where everyone who in, involves it is involved in cooperative marketing. So that, that's what I'll be developing. Um, I'm seeing a lot of the businesses in the group having plans for the future, and we're all just trying to get on with it um, as much as possible. But I, I've seen a huge opportunity in this, and, and as again the comes out of the positivity of the people in the smaller businesses is fantastic. Um, really, really good. So you can't be in marketing and be negative. But, you, you know, it's very, it's not the right profession for you if you're a negative person. So I'm very much glad, glad three quarters full. I think this is an opportunity time and I think we need to look for it. And I think the leaders in the UK need to stop thinking, okay, how do we get back to the way things are and start thinking this is almost almost like sheet of paper. What do we want to write on and where do we want to go? I think you're exactly right there, Tim. It is a time where leaders have to come together and decide what direction it ultimately is that we're going to go in as a country. And let's certainly hope that it's going to be a positive one. Um, I've got to say, it's been so enlightening and such a pleasure welcoming you onto our programme this afternoon, Tim. And I actually think, just given how fantastic it's been for myself and for the listeners, that it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the show at some point in this next year, once we do have a better idea of what sort of course we're charting. Great. That would be terrific, uh, and thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been fantastic having you with us on the air today, Tim. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the programme. And most importantly as well, do take care and do stay safe with everything that's still going on, because what is for sure is that we're certainly not out of the woods with this one just yet. Absolutely. Thank you very much, and everybody stay safe and get thinking. I would also like to reiterate that message as well to all of the listeners tuning in. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves, be considerate of others um, and don't give up because it does make such a key difference during a trying time like this. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Tim McCain onto today's programme and coming up next on the show today we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett.
Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, having been elevated to Parliament's upper house in August 2015. And that followed a distinguished political career for Lord Blunkett, despite being blind from birth. He held various senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to speak with him. That and more is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up 
inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that 
Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. 
I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to t- be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.